We are uh, specifically in Acts chapter 19, verse 21 to 41. Uh, these verses uh, find Paul ministering in Ephesus as part of his third missionary journey. He would end up staying in Ephesus for about three years total. He clearly considered this to be a strategic city. Well, as usual, Paul began his ministry in this uh, synagogue. Every Sabbath day, he spoke out boldly. He was reasoning with the people, trying to persuade them related to the kingdom of God. And they were willing to hear Paul for about three months, and they turned against him. They became hardened against the truth. They were disobedient to God. They were even speaking evil of the way of the gospel to others, trying to dissuade them from hearing what Paul had to say. The terms uh, kingdom of God and the way are terms that are used here. Make it clear that Paul is speaking of the gospel. He was reminding them that we are all accountable to God as our creator, that he is our sovereign king. He was speaking of the fact that we have all failed our creator. We all need a savior. He was speaking of the fact that Jesus was that promised savior. He is the promised Christ, and he is the only way to be in a right relationship with the Father. So all men, both Jews and Greeks, must repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, many of the Jews in the Ephesus synagogue were not willing to receive the word of the Lord. So Paul led the believers to officially make a break with the synagogue, to officially withdraw and begin a local church. They began to meet in a lecture hall, and Paul was then able to speak on a daily basis. The Lord worked through Paul in some very extraordinary ways. Uh, many were healed of uh, diseases, delivered from demonic possession. There, were the, there was a story of the traveling Jewish exorcists who were trying to imitate what they saw Paul doing. And a demon within a demon-possessed man to whom they were speaking, that demon actually spoke to them and actually acknowledged the divine authority of Jesus Christ, but these exorcists had no such authority. So the demon, through that one man, attacked seven exorcists, beat them up, and drove them out of the house where they were. Well, as a result, the fear of the Lord just fell upon all the people of Ephesus. And uh, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was being exalted and magnified in the city. The Lord began to work in very personal and practical ways among the people. New believers saw how clearly, clearly how evil the practice of divination and sorcery was. So they voluntarily brought out books of magic worth uh, possibly even up to $6 million and burned them. Luke sums up what was happening by saying, The word of the Lord was growing mightily. And prevailing. That's what was clearly taking place in Ephesus. So as a result of Paul's daily speaking in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, the word of the Lord was being heard by all who lived in the province of Asia. It was growing mightily. We see the word of the Lord prevailing as people were born again and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We see the word of the Lord prevailing over disease and demons. We see the Lord prevailing over people regarding their involvement in various forms of divination. The Lord was working mightily in Ephesus, and that's the context for the verses that we're considering this morning. It's so encouraging when you think about it to see just amazing, life-changing way things that God does through his word. I mean, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by circumstances, to see things that just seem almost hopeless because they're so difficult, so bad, but we're reminded here that God uses his word to do remarkable things, even in situations that seem impossible. 
according at least at least as far as what as far as we can tell. Now, before we get into the main narrative of the rest of the chapter, look at chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent it to Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I covered... And those couple verses there, Luke is giving us some insight into Paul's ministry vision. So under the divine direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul was making some plans for where he was going to go in the future. We first see that he purposed to go to Jerusalem. Now, we aren't told why here, but we know from things that Paul said in the book of Romans and in 1st and 2nd Corinthians that one of the main purposes in going to Jerusalem was to deliver an offering. Many of the Gentile churches had collected an offering to be taken to Jerusalem to help the poor in that church, in that particular congregation. So it was important for Paul that they maintain a good connection, good relationship with the Jerusalem church. But before that was going to happen, Paul planned to go through Macedonia and Achaia. He would want to for sure visit the churches that had been previously planted in those provinces because he regularly did that. And so this would include the church at Corinth as well as Thessalonica and Philippi and others. Well, in that vein, we see that at this time, Paul also sent Timothy and Erastus uh, to Macedonia uh, who had been traveling with him, helping him, uh, sent them to Macedonia to be an encouragement to the churches there before Paul arrived. We're also told that after all of these things were done, Paul intended to go to Rome. Now, this was not just a curiosity visit for this great city. But Paul was intent on taking the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. He generally focused on key cities as the means of doing that, starting churches in those cities. But if you're going to try to reach the Roman Empire with the gospel, then, of course, you would want to go to Rome. Well, these plans didn't work out exactly the way he planned, but they did happen. And they give us really just insight into the heart of, the, of this man who really just has such a vision to reach the world for Christ, starting local churches all over the Roman Empire, which was the known world at that time. Well, beginning in verse 23, Luke gives us some detail of a significant thing that happened in Ephesus after Paul sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. We are told that a great disturbance took place that was instigated by Demetrius, who was a silversmith. He and others uh, made silver shrines, small silver shrines of the temple of Artemis. Well, as we saw earlier, Paul's ministry of the word of the Lord had been quite effective in Ephesus. And it was so effective that it was causing Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen to lose money. They began to make their concerns known. Many in the city responded with anger and concern about Artemis being denigrated. Now, the large crowd was able to be calmed down finally, and a full-scale riot was avoided. But what I see clearly to me here in these verses is there is a connection between worship and culture. Those things are connected. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. In our first main point, we need to see this. At the foundation of every culture is the issue of worship. At the foundation of every culture is the issue of worship, even in atheistic cultures. Everybody worships something. Everybody does. 
Culture is an interesting word if you look it up. It's defined in a number of different ways. Anthropologists will speak of culture as the customary beliefs and social forms of a people. It's described as material traits of a racial or a religious or a social group. Well, those things are true descriptions. I mean, different people, groups of people have different ways of looking at things. I mean, the music tastes are different, language is different, habits, uh, clothing, foods, all kinds of things can vary relating to various cultures. But I've always been impressed with Henry Van Til's simple, and I just think it's such a profound definition. He said, culture is religion externalized. I know we've mentioned this before. I just think this is one of the most basic, one of the best definitions of what culture is. He is saying that the ultimate thing that determines the ways, the belief system, the customs that groups of people have, it's their belief system. It's what they value more highly than anything else. It's what they really worship. What is, it's the most fundamental thing as far as they're concerned. Sometimes it's the religion that they profess to believe. That seems to be true here in Ephesus. Sometimes even when a people profess a particular faith, their actions show that what they really worship is really something different than that. There, often, there can be things in the life that are idols that actually end up controlling what they do. Well, let's consider some things that are going on in Ephesus at this time. First, we need to see that the worship of the goddess Artemis dominated Ephesian culture. Look at verses 23 to 27. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and sin, and said, Man, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that, that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So as we read through those verses, it's obvious how central the worship of Artemis was for the whole city, really for the whole region. Now the temple of Artemis was a magnificent structure. You may know this, that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was a Greek goddess that loosely corresponded with Diana of Roman uh, mythology. Uh, so you may actually have the term word Diana there instead of Artemis, depending on your translation. <coughs> Artemis was the mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto. And this goddess was worshipped as the goddess of fertility in man and beast and in nature. Artemis was the patron goddess of the city of, of Ephesians, of the city of Ephesus. The actual statue shows Artemis with many breasts, representing the nourishing aspects of nature. And the goddess was associated with health and help uh, of various kinds. She was a virgin who supposedly helped women, especially in times of childbirth. The word for Artemis actually speaks of being safe and sound. 
Well, the city of Ephesus was known as the guardian of Artemis because her elaborate and beautiful temple was located in that city, and that was their identity. So in these verses, we see a couple things. We see first that it dominated the economy. It dominated the economy. Demetrius was a silversmith. A major aspect of his business was making silver shrines for Artemis. It says in verse 24 that this brought no little business to the craftsmen. So they made lots and lots of money off of Artemis. Uh, the silver shrines could refer to several different things. I mean, uh, little maybe medals or medallions uh, stamped with the image of the temple or the image of Artemis. Uh, could be miniature replicas of the temple. Uh, probably include charms that people could wear uh, themselves. Ephesus was a popular place for people to visit because of the temple. And, of course, when people from the outside came to visit, they would spend money in Ephesus especially related to things, for things related to the temple. Well, Demetrius brought together other craftsmen whose business was largely dependent on the temple of Artemis. They were all very concerned about what was happening in their city through, because of Paul's preaching, and they were concerned that their trade could fall into disrepute. Well, second, we see not only did it dominate the, the economy, but... The worship of Artemis also demanded the people's full allegiance. It demanded their full allegiance. When Demetrius was expressing his concerns to his fellow craftsmen, it started with the threat to their finances, the threat to their business. That was clearly the most important thing as far as, as, far as he was concerned, and, apparently, and probably most of them. But then he got to the religious aspect of Artemis. Look again at verse 27. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the whole world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So he says of the goddess that all who are in Asia, really the whole known world, worshipped Artemis. The word for temple here, by the way, speaks of something set apart as being a deity. So this was their God. And he was concerned, Demetrius was concerned that she could be dethroned from her place of magnificence. He calls her the great goddess. Now, of course, this was an expression of, uh, of, uh, of praise and admiration. But it was also a standing, kind of a standard confession that all who worshipped Artemis would make. You see it, we'll see it in verse 28 and, 20 and 34 as well. The common confession is this. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That was a common confession that they would make. This was the object of their worship, and it demanded full allegiance from them. Of course, the whole reason that Demetrius was even speaking of these things is because of what Paul was preaching. So this is an illustration of our next fact, our next point, and that is the fact that the gospel directly confronts the sin of idolatry with the truth that there is only one God. Jesus Christ is Lord. So remember, the word of the Lord was growing mightily. It was prevailing. Verse 23 tells us that it was, uh, that it was driving Demetrius. It says there was no small disturbance concerning the way. So in other words, it was a huge issue. The way, of course, speaks of the Christian faith. It speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who saves from sin and condemnation. It also speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who becomes the absolute Lord of our lives. 
He is the way. So when people received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they understood they could not continue to worship the goddess Artemis. In fact, they understand that gods made with hands are no gods at all. That is something that Paul was making very plain in Ephesus, just like he did. He made that plain in Athens as well. So as many became Christians in Ephesus, they were turning away from Artemis. They would no longer be saying with their fellow citizens, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would no longer be going to the temple to participate in different acts of worship related to Artemis. They would no longer be participating in the divination that was associated with this temple. Instead, they burned their magic books as an expression of their repentance. The gospel directly confronts the sin of idolatry. So when a person becomes a Christian, that immediately puts them at odds with many things within their culture. Remember, culture is religion externalized. Christians will begin to realize that there are things in their culture that they just can no longer participate in. There are things in our lives that we need to resist and turn away from. I mean, there's just so many temptations that can become strong temptations for us. I mean, the list is almost endless. Uh, Anger, lust, worry, gluttony, holding grudges, coveting, compromise, pride, doubt, unbelief. Um, and when we regularly fall to those temptations, on a, I mean, when we follow them on a regular basis, we are coming to the point where we're actually, in a sense, kind of putting them on a pedestal like an idol that's controlling us. Well, as Christians, though, we know and live with Jesus Christ as our Lord. But we also know that sin still trips us up in many ways. But in Christ, we come to the Lord and confess our sin. We trust him to give us the grace to turn from our sin. And we know that Christ paid the full price for that sin when he died on the cross. So it's the gospel that exposes our sin idolatry, but also is the gospel that brings forgiveness and deliverance from the sin. Well, in Ephesus, Demetrius and others were greatly concerned at the effect that the word of the Lord was having on the idolatry that was such an integral part of their lives. That leads us to the next point. When a culture's idol is threatened, the people will often respond in hostile and aggressive ways. Often respond in hostile and aggressive ways. It's obvious that Demetrius was not just having a calm discussion with the other craftsmen about this situation with Paul and Artemis. He was really upset. He was mad. He was feeling very threatened. And all the rest of the craftsmen soon joined in his agitation. And soon the whole town was brought into it. Look at verses 28 to 34. When they heard this and, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. 
But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So it says in verse 28, they were filled with rage. And in response, they began to cry out with their, with their, uh, their phrase, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is our God. We will not tolerate it being challenged by the word of the Lord. Others in the city were called up into the rage. It says many were confused by what was going on, but they were all galvanized around the cry of great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They go after Paul, but they can't can't find him. Instead, they find two men who were with him from Macedonia, Gaius and Aristarchus. They dragged them into the amphitheater in the city. This was a large circular enclosure that had been built into a hillside. It would actually hold about 25,000 people. <coughs> well, there are men by the name, just just as a side, there are men by the names of Gaius and Aristarchus that show up in other places in Acts and in Paul's letters. We don't know for sure if they're the same ones or not. I'm just not sure about that. But what it seems to be, though, these are pretty fairly recent converts, it seems, and it's kind of impressive of how soon they have become active in ministry alongside with Paul being a help to him. Well, when Paul heard about what was going on, he wanted to go to the assembly. I'm sure he was concerned about Gaius and Aristarchus and trying to keep them from doing harm uh, to these guys, and the other disciples would not let him go. Uh, As we see in verse 31, there were some people known as Asiarchs also told him not to go to the theater. This is kind of interesting because these men were public officials, and their office seemed to be connected with religion. The Asiarchs were chosen in the cities of the province to actually conduct sacrificial offerings uh, and public services in connection with Artemis. And it's fascinating that they knew Paul and were friendly with him. There's a good chance that they were not Christians, but they still had a lot of respect for Paul. And they were saying, don't go there. Well, in the assembly, there was lots of shouting, but the whole thing was very confusing and there were many people in the crowd who didn't know what was even going on. Some of the Jews seemed to recognize what was going on and wanted to make sure that the Ephesian citizens knew that there was a difference in what the Jews believed versus what the Christians were, believe, were teaching. So they apparently put forth Alexander to speak on behalf of the Jews. But the crowd shouts him down. They did this again by repeating, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So it was their commitment to Artemis that continued to bring them together. Now, the culture of any people is going to be seriously tainted by sin and unbelief. I mean, all mankind are born with a sin nature, and that sin and unbelief is going to show itself in different ways, but it's going to be there. When God begins to change people's lives through the gospel, not only is their life transformed, but it has an effect on the culture they're in as well. But those who hold firm to their idolatry will stand against anything that threatens the very thing that they worship. I was wondering, and you guys may be thinking the same thing, what would be one of the unifying idols in the United States? There's obviously many things that people can worship and commit their lives to other than the one true God. I think the one idol 
that is unifying many, not everybody, but many in our nation is the idol, and I'm just going to call it a personal identity. It's revealed in catchphrases like, be true to yourself, follow your heart, you got to do you. Personal identity is all about self-definition and self-expression. And much of, what, much of that is focused on sexual identity. If one is heterosexual, like God made us, then they must be okay with sex outside of marriage and living together without being married. That also means that if the woman becomes pregnant, that they want to maintain the right for themselves to kill the baby in the womb, if that is what they choose to do. If one chooses to identify as homosexual, then attraction to someone of the same sex is not considered a temptation to be resisted, but an orientation to be fully pursued. And they must have the right to marry a person of the same sex if they want to. They must be able to adopt children and be considered a normal family. One can also decide that their biological sex is not the sex they really are. Once again, Satan brings about these kinds of temptations into a person's life. They can be very strong temptations. But instead of seeing it as a temptation to be resisted, it's something they choose as a self-identity that is completely opposite to what they really are. This month, as you know, has been set aside by our culture as a month to focus on that idol. It's a time when everyone is expected to shout out together, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Sadly, there are many caught up in these celebrations, parades, and so forth, like the Ephesians were, and they're not really clear what's going on. But they just go along with the crowd. It's just so heartbreaking to me when I see young people, really young people, participating in these parades and thinking they have no idea what they're doing. This is just the trend. They don't realize what they're doing. And it's so tragic. We also see a great deal of hostility against anyone that would threaten self-identity. I mean, the possibility of a Supreme Court ruling that will strike down Roe versus Wade has thrown many into a violent frenzy. Their idol, their worship is being threatened, and they will not stand for that. Many would look at the idolatry of Ephesus and the Roman Empire as something strange and uncivilized, but we're really not any different. Culture is religion externalized. At the foundation of every culture is the issue of what is worshipped. Next we see from these verses that idolatrous worship leads to a belief system that is based more on conjecture and superstition than on truth. Beginning in verse 35, we see that the town clerk is able to get the attention of those who were in the theater. His title doesn't sound impressive, town clerk, but he was the one who kept the archives of the city. He was in charge of its money, and he presided over their official assemblies. So probably the most influential person in the city, actually. Some have uh, spoken of his titles being more similar to what we call a secretary of state. 
Well, this man is able to get control of the angry mob and talk with them. So look at verses 35 and 36. He says, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. What he says here is very interesting. We learn here that the beliefs surrounding the worship of the goddess Artemis were based on superstition. But these superstitions were considered to be undeniable facts. Undeniable facts. The town clerk says everybody knows that Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis. They were the temple keepers. That's who they are. That's their identity, and nothing was going to change that. I read, by the way, that the temple of Artemis was considered so sacred, so holy, that just to be able to sweep it out or do any kind of cleaning was considered a tremendous honor. Then he says, they all know that this image of Artemis fell down from heaven. The phrase fell down from heaven is more literally translated as fell down from Zeus, Z-E-U-S. Several ancient writers spoke of the image of Artemis as being so old that it had outlived seven restorations of the temple. So it was believed that it dropped out of heaven. This was not uncommon belief uh, among idol worshipers in these days. And as we mentioned earlier, Zeus was considered to be the father of Artemis. Well, the town clerk speaks of these as being undeniable, indisputable facts. In other words, we, all, we know all these things are absolutely true. And no matter what other people may say, they cannot convince us that anything that we believe is wrong. We would all see this claim and know right away, that's just a superstition. There's no way to verify what you believe to be true. In fact, the idea of a sculpted image falling down from heaven really seems quite impossible. But that's not what they thought. They believed it to be true, or at least they said they believed it to be true. Well, as we think, you don't have to think very far to make some parallels here. As we think about the idol self-identity in our day, there are many parallels, a lot more than I'm going to make here. We are told, for example, that there is nothing sacred about the joining of one man and one woman in marriage. We are told that people are actually born to be homosexual. There's no scientific evidence of that, but that's what we're told. We are told that just being born a man or a woman does not actually mean that you are a man or you are a woman. And as you know, our newest Supreme Court justice admitted she did not really know what a woman was. We are being told that a man can have a menstrual cycle like a woman. A man can also get pregnant. I would put all those things in the, in the category of superstition and mythology. But people believe it with all their heart, or at least they say they do. And those who refuse to go along with these superstitions can be fired from their job, expelled from their schools, all kinds of things if you don't go along. But these verses make it clear next that the gospel directly challenges 
unsubstantiated belief systems with the truth of the word of God. That's what this whole riot was about. The teaching of the kingdom of God, the way, the word of the Lord, was calling into question everything these idolaters believed. That's why they were so mad. Their livelihood, their whole identity as a, city, as a citizen of Ephesus was being challenged by the word of God, and they were being worked up into a rage about that. The teaching of the kingdom of God tells us that there is one true God as our creator. So he's the sovereign ruler over all things. All are accountable to him. The word of the Lord tells us that God's law, God's word, is the standard for what is right and wrong, the standard for what is true versus what is false. The fact that it's the way tells us that we're all sinners and we're all in desperate need of a Savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're called by God's grace to receive him as our Savior and Lord. So the gospel challenges unsubstantiated belief systems and we've had, we have to stand firm on those truths. Well, thirdly, third main point, those who engage in idolatrous worship will actively protect their belief system from outside attacks. So the town clerk continues to speak to the people in verses 37 to 41. It says, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man. The courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with the day's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After this, he dismissed the assembly. So the clerk is concerned about this unruly crowd. They're in danger of being accused of rioting. The Romans did not take kindly to riotous behavior in the cities that were under their rule. There could be grave consequences if this turned into a full-scale riot. At the time, it could still be loosely considered maybe a lawful assembly. And the town clerk wanted to make sure that it stayed that way and didn't go, didn't and 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 ceased. He points out that if Demetrius and the other craftsmen have legal charges to bring against Paul, there were courts set up for that kind of thing. Interesting to note that in verse 37, he says, "These men are neither robbers of temples, or blasphemers of their goddess." Well, one who rob things related to the temple worship will be guilty of sacrilegious actions. Well, Paul and his, uh, those who were working alongside did not do that. They were not stealing, taking things related to worship. But their message was clear that gods made with human hands were no gods at all. That would be considered blasphemy to the people whose Artemis was their god, goddess. The town clerk seems to be purposefully lying to keep the meeting from getting out of hand. All that was involved in the worship of Artemis the Ephesians must be guarded at all cost, and he was willing to lie to keep the people from getting more upset and causing a problem that the Roman government could come down hard on them for. We most definitely see that in our day as well. From government policies, laws, educational institutions, 
entertainment, institutions, social media, business organizations, all, for the most part, are in cahoots with the guarding of the idol of self-identity in our nation. So what should we do? Well, next point is this. In spite of the attacks and attempted protection of idolatrous worship within a culture, believers must hold firm to the gospel. There is no doubt that the believers in Ephesus held firm to their faith. Soon after this uproar took place, Paul did leave to go to Macedonia. But before he went, he exhorted the disciples. He, of course, wanted them to stand firm for the truths of the kingdom of God. He wanted to hold fast to the way of salvation through faith in Christ alone, to hold firm to the word of the Lord and continue to teach it and apply it in their life. That's what we have to do as well. We have to resist the temptation to compromise the truth of the scripture because of the pressure from the culture to do that. Sadly, there are significant numbers of people, whole churches, whole denominations even, who are consider themselves Christians but are fully tolerant of everything that the idol of self-identity calls for. We have to stand firm and resist that temptation. But we have to stand firm in humility, not in arrogance. We dare not pretend that we are never bothered by some of those same temptations that are common in this self-identity movement. We're guilty at times of not only being tempted, but also of sinning in some of the same ways. In fact, as most of you know, it was just last week, maybe a week before that, that the sexual abuse report came out that Southern Baptist uh, called to be done on our denomination. There's some terrible examples of sexual sin being committed against other people, all of the same things that are in that whole self-identity movement. There are terrible examples of people, of those who were guilty of sin, not being held accountable like they should have. So we have to hold firm to the gospel. We have to hold firm in humility. We have to hold firm to the word of the Lord. Trust that the Lord will be strong where we are weak. We've got to ask the Lord for a heart of compassion for those who have been so deceived. It's the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ that is our hope. I want to close with a quote from Joseph Bianchi from his uh, book entitled Common Faith, Common Culture. He says this, Christianity transforms it transforms all other cultures for the good. It has freed more people spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and even literally than any other movement in history. The gospel is counter-cultural. It enables us to live within a deeply flawed culture with faith and hope. It's the gospel that transforms lives. Therefore, it's the gospel that can transform a culture. It's done that in multiple ways, multiple cultures, down through history, and it will continue. Our Savior has called us to make the nations, which includes various cultures all over the world, to make the nations his disciples. So we have to hold firm to his word. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the things that 
we can see in this situation that happened 2,000 years ago, and even though it's very different cultures from ours, at the same, at the same time, there are things that are extremely similar to us. Lord, help us to see the danger of idolatry. First off, in our own personal lives. We all have sins that we struggle with. We all have temptations that we really are really hard for us. We are grateful. I mean, we, we read earlier the, the, our statement of faith on the perseverance of the saints. And there's conf we have confidence that, Lord, you're going to work in us and enable us to persevere through even when we fall and blow it. But, Lord, help us to stand firm against those temptations in our own life. I also ask you would help us to stand firm, again, in a humble way, but help us to stand firm against the things that have become the idols of our culture. We have to stand firm against those things. And we ask that you would also enable us to have a ministry of compassion, a ministry of truth, a ministry of help, a gospel ministry to those who are being so tempted to follow this same idolatrous worship themselves. Help us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. That's really what this whole issue was about. It was about the way. It was about the word of the Lord. It was about the kingdom of God. So it was about Jesus Christ. I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I realize that I have fallen far short of everything that the Lord requires of me. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into this world, took on human flesh, lived a perfectly holy life, and then died a sacrificial death for sinners. I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the very Lord of my life. I know that means I'm going to have to turn away from things that idols in this culture is calling me to. But I want you as my Lord because you are the true Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make it on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.